Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. And welcome today to The Daily Evolver Live for those of you who are tuning in via the Integral Life portal. Uh, thank you, Integral Life, for hosting me for all these years. And now we're simulcast on Facebook. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. Where do I begin on such a big news day? We have Trump back in the COVID-infested White House. We have all the controversy about what really went on and what his doctor said and when was he infected and who was he with and not allowing the CDC to do the contact tracing and the stimulus negotiations are off, but no, they're on. And Trump is brain-addled by steroids and, you know, big day, right? <laughs> so imagine my surprise when I checked in this morning on Fox and Friends and got the big breaking news, the real bombshell revelation that has come from the new trove of declassified documents regarding the Trump collusion and proves that the, in the last campaign, Hillary was trying to stir up stories about Trump being a Russian asset, and John Brennan and Susan Rice were part of it, and Obama knew, and it was a deep state plot against a new president. And as Ainsley Earhart, the hostess of Fox and Friends said, the Democrats fret about a peaceful transfer of power after this election upcoming. But what happened to 2016 was anything but a peaceful transfer of power. And then they went on and they had their expert guests and so forth and blah, 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 you know. I, like most people, have tuned it out. I think it's a, a story for true believers on both sides at this point. Besides, I discount just naturally. I notice myself discount anything that has to do with the defense of Donald Trump, because I just deeply believe him to be indefensible. Uh, so I noticed this about myself. I will also say that I always thought that the investigation into the Trump-Russia collusion story was a legitimate one, considering the circumstantial evidence against Trump. And how else would one explain Trump's affection for Putin? his, the circumstantial evidence against Trump. How else to explain the meeting at Trump Tower, Paul Manafort's dealings with Konstantin Kalinchek, the Russian spy, and all of it, on and on. I remember the, I think it was a Netflix documentary called Active Measures, which was produced shortly after Trump's inauguration, maybe a year or so, I suppose. And it laid out as these polemical documentaries do. And, you know, it's, they're an art form. They're a service in and of themselves. And it laid out Putin's 30-year history of trying to subvert American democracy, Trump's dealings with the Russian mob, how Russia ropes people into being assets through the three prongs of flattery, sex, and money. You know, it's not like you necessarily sign up to be a spy, but you just get sort of co-opted by these three things. 
And you have to admit that is the Trump trifecta, flattery, sex, and money. And so it all made sense in the physics of its own argument. But now, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure. And I still think it's true. And I think that historians are just begun to plumb the shallows of Donald Trump's mind and business dealings. But I'm good not totally getting it, not totally knowing. I think these things are unknowable in some way. I will say that uh, regardless of what the ultimate truth is, that there has been a really big, important piece of it missing from the mainstream analysis. I'm going to make a case for that here by playing a segment of, I guess it's called Dateline White House with Nicole Wallace every afternoon on MSNBC. And she had as one of her guests, her boyfriend, even though it's irrelevant, but it is her boyfriend, Michael Schmidt, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times political reporter. Um, he's just, uh, you know, the, the, one of the young deans of political reporting. And he just published a new book called Donald Trump versus the United States Inside the Struggle to Stop a President. So there we have it. It's by Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter who continues to break news about the most important political story of our lives as he chronicles the clash between a president and the officials of his own government who try to stop him reporting from my book, which was basically that they don't know whether the president is acting out of his ego, his insecurities, his family business interests, protecting his family or his ties to Russia. They can't put their finger on what it is that's truly motivating the president. What is behind his unprecedented, extraordinary use of power? So not only are these people trying to contain the president and to stop the president, but they're doing so in a very puzzled place, in a place of not totally getting what the president is up to. And that is a question that I think that we will wrestle with as a country for many years to come. What was the reason that Donald Trump behaved the way that he did? What led him to do that? Was he simply overwhelmed by the office and um, scared of, of being exposed by it? And is that why he did this? Um, or is there a, a larger, more deeper, more sinister thing? And I guess the, the thing about, the remarkable part about all this is that despite all the investigations that have gone on over the past four years, we don't really have a clear answer to that question. How about that? So uh, this is the creme de la creme of political reporting. And to explain Trump's affinity for Russia, we have uh, his ego, insecurity, family business, his ties to Russia. He's being overwhelmed by the office. He's afraid of being exposed. Or there's a larger, deeper, more sinister thing going on. And again, that may all be true, all of it. You know. But there is something else that's really important and, and could explain it in and of itself. And that is that he sees the world the same way Putin does. He actually likes it. He's, he is himself an autocrat. That is, he has a health, well, I was going to say good, healthy dose of red 
I'm not sure how healthy it is. I'm not sure health, how healthy red is uh, in general, unless it's very, very well integrated. But just in general, he likes the way the world works when an autocrat is in charge. And autocrats often get along very well with other autocrats. And they fawn over each other and they praise each other and they create these geysers of bullshit that they both ride until the worm turns and then they go after each other and it's a you know welcome to human history all these modern ideas that come on in the 1700s in terms of philosophy and in the first real enactment with the declaration of independence the u.s constitution this idea of true separation of powers checks and balances of these world organizations and treaties letting the experts work things out and alliances where everybody has to be treated with respect and everybody has to be listened to and we want to cooperate with people who are opponents we don't think of them as enemies anymore all of that is it's annoying to an autocrat it's like why what, what's the point even voting itself i mean most autocrats have some patina of elections these days. They didn't used to. I guess it's progress that they do. Hypocrisy is the stage and the path. And a true autocrat, like Trump in his heart, is not really going to have any qualms about rigging an election. You know, you got to be a killer out there. And we heard it. It was the last thing ringing in our ears from that first debate last week was it's going to be months between, before we get this sorted out, says Trump. It's literally the last thing on the debate. I think it turned a lot of people off. I'm, I'm hoping that it did. Because one of the things that we see, as we, particularly if, as we look at all of this from a developmental view, is just the evolution of the idea of leadership itself, and what it even means to be a leader. We have a consensus these days, it's a modern slash postmodern consensus, that leadership is about inspiring people to a goal, bringing out their best, persuasion, getting other people on board, caring about them, serving the people you lead, being servant leadership is a big thing. This is not the way it has been. This is new. It used to be about domination. Who is able to assert their will onto their people? This has been my summer of World War II with all the uh, reading books on Nazis and uh, the Holocaust and watching this amazing, um, probably the best television I've ever seen. I have friends who have literally said the same thing, and it's called A French Village. And it's, I think, 80 some segments, episodes of a multi year series created in France about the occupation of a French village after the Blitzkrieg in World War II, and just an amazing, amazing show. I mean, that's been the sort of core of my summer of World War II that's turning into the fall of World War II. But at any rate, one of the things that was surprising to me, I guess it wasn't, but it was definitely brought home to me, is just what leadership meant in those days. And that was that you, got, you bent people to your vision. I think of the, the Nazi documentary, Triumph of the Will, that was created in 1934, I guess, by Leni Riefenstahl, a famous German filmmaker, considered a great film, actually. Uh, it's of the Nuremberg Rally in 1934. And 
the idea is a great leader makes people follow and he does it through some combination of fear and awe or adoration. You, you want to say love, but he who is feared is hated. I always thought that was a, a correct assessment by Lao Tzu or whoever said it, but <laughs> one of these old wise people. If you want to get a real flavor for it, it's something that's sort of always bothered me even when I was a believer, but it's like God. You know, praise me or you'll be sorry you didn't. Four of the Ten Commandments are about praise me above all others. That's an autocrat. And as long as you do, when the autocrat's happy, when Big Daddy's happy, everybody's happy. There's nothing as beautiful as Big Daddy smiling upon you. But when the worm turns, watch out. So that's really deeply embedded in the human psyche. Trump is a regression to that in many ways. I'm not the Trump hater I used to be, but part of why I'm not is because I can see this as, as I often say, psychopaths are people too. So anyway, one of the things that I find particularly excruciating <laughs> in a, in a Schadenfrau, what, what, what is that word, the German word, the, the joy and the suffering of your enemies way, is how these Republicans who know better, in Congress particularly, kowtow to Trump, like Ted Cruz, who you know hates Donald Trump even more than you do. I mean, he and his wife were personally, floridly humiliated by Trump as part of season one of the Trump show, the Republican primary in 2016. And it's always uh, Cruz's father, for that matter. So you know he hates them. They all do, or many of them do. They, some of them might like his policies. I think some of them do. But he who is feared is hated. You know, that's one of the ways Trump keeps people in line. It's through fear. He said it. It's the title of Bob Woodward's last book, Fear, because Trump, Donald Trump said, I think it's the epigram of the book. He said, I hate to say this, but the secret to leadership is fear. Yeah. I'm, I may be bastardizing that a bit, but that's the essence of the quote. And so, you know, the, the predicament that the Republican Congress people find themselves in, and Republican governors and all of the ones who line up behind Trump, is that their voters love Trump. And in our two-party system, which rewards partisanship and polarization, it's like Trey Gowdy said, who was a congressman who quit, he said the only election that Republicans like him, he's from Texas, the only election that a Republican in Congress can lose is to a challenger attacking them from the right. So they have to stay over there. And they do. But I think oh, many of them will be very happy to see Donald Trump in the rearview mirror and sooner than later. I do want to say one other thing about sort of in favor of autocracy, if I may, is that, you know, we hear a lot about how worldwide democracy is under siege and we're having a geopolitical regression to autocracy in countries like Turkey and Hungary and Russia and China, uh, Brazil, that 
this is a bad trend in history and the progress is reversing itself. I think from a developmental perspective, there's a better explanation for this as well. And that is that there's a reset in these countries that have a center of gravity traditional or earlier, or at least enough people in th this territory that are you know, pre-modern in their hearts, that they're getting a government that's more aligned with their views. And oftentimes these autocrats that we see are very popular in their countries. It comes and goes, but you know, Putin's what, 80% popularity? A, a lot of these countries were prematurely, we wanna say colonized by modernity. Whether it was a revolution, a communist revolution, an enlightened leader like Ataturk who comes into Turkey and gets rid of traditional clothes and traditional attitudes and puts the clerics in their place, or corporatist monarchies like Saudi Arabia that first force a certain modernity on the people uh, because that's where the money is. And sometimes it's a delusion of people in the modern world that these countries have become more modern than they actually have because they're playing in the modern system and leaders are able to play in the modern system as autocrats are. They can play green if they want to. So that is happening in a lot of countries. There's sort of that recalibration as the country itself continues to grind to grow grind its way forward. And again, as I often say, evolution is beautiful, but not pretty. And so we can see that. And we can also see that there can be fruits of autocrats working together, as in the Middle East. New York Times had a, a editorial about the normalization of relations between the UAE and Bahrain with Israel. These were very significant. Trump deserves credit for them. Uh, they're not as good as he says. But it's widely agreed that these are good things. You know, that's autocrats working together. That was having all the diplomats in the world trying to pull that off can be far more frustrating and fruitless as it has been for, you know, since 1948. So anyway, we have this autocrat. And there he was yesterday in his Mussolini on the balcony moment as he came back from the hospital and climbed the stairs and took off his mask. Was that sad and pathetic or was it inspiring? You know, and, and this is just how, where you are, your cosmic address determines how you receive that. We've all seen the video of him wheezing and breathing through his teeth and trying to keep it together. And you know, there is something that's sad and pathetic but there's also something inspiring. You know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Don't let COVID take over your life. Uh, that's going to ring true for his true believers. But again, it's, I think, becoming a thin gruel for the rest of us. We're moving. I don't know whether we're done with Trump or he's done with us or not. I mean, clearly Trump will go on, I suppose. God's will be done. <laughs> but whether he wins the election and continues to be president, I don't know. I don't rule it out, I'll tell you that. But it is encouraging to see where the polls are going. 
And to think that maybe we're, we've had enough Trump and that we are moving towards a new synthesis. There is a dialectic of history. I mean, this is a, really a key part of integral thinking, that there is a thesis, then there's an antithesis that comes up against it, and then with the battle between these two, there's a new synthesis. This is certainly true as new stages of development, consciousness development and cultural development come online. We had a big one in the past with the Civil War, and I'm going to get to that in a second because I want to point out Joe Biden and his speech at Gettysburg yesterday, where he did a beautiful speech. I loved it. I was very inspired by it. And it was done at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, big swing state, of course, and also the the place that one of the biggest battles of the U.S. Civil War took place. The Civil War was, if we look at it developmentally, that was a big crisis between the emergence of a modern system in the North in competition with a traditional system, an agrarian system in the South with even enough red in it to have slavery. Uh, Although traditional, particularly early traditional, plenty good with slavery too. But modernity, no, no, no good no more. The slavery and you know, industrialization, a new kind of attitude, uh, less ethnocentric. And we had to fight that one out in a way that was beyond brutal. I mean, we can't even imagine it. 2.5% of the population died in that war. Imagine that. And that would be equivalent to 8 million people dying today. We've got to have a, a big uptick in violence before anything like that is going to happen. It's, it's not in the cards. But, you know, we can see that there actually continues to be in the grinding updraft of evolution a new uh, struggle between worldviews or stages. And that is post-modernity coming online. You know, it came started really in the 60s and has really come to a, a new fruition with Me Too, Black Lives Matter. I've done many episodes on this. Very, very fruitful, and there's a you know mean aspect to all of it as well. But again, welcome to evolution. I think one of the best explanations I've seen for the process in general is developed by my, my good friend and neighbor <laughs> and leading integral philosopher, Steve McIntosh, in his book, Developmental Politics, How America Can Grow into a Better Version of Itself. And he talks about the polarity between the grievance pole and the gratitude pole. And that postmodernity is magnetized to the grievance story. And so it's the grievance story of America. God knows there is one, especially if you're a descendant of slaves or Native Americans, all of the sins of America, and there are many. And then there's the gratitude pole. The one that says that, God damn, you know, after all of human history and all of the autocrats and monarchs and tyrants and thugs, that we have a new realization that we need to deconstruct power to have checks and balances and that everybody is sovereign in their own breast, not the king, and to actually write that out, think that through, and make it happen, it's something akin to miraculous. And so this is the gratitude side 
of these founding fathers. It's like they're miracles. They're, they deserve to be on Mount Rushmore. And they had slaves, some of them. It's really just an astonishing thing. So anyway, we, we, we go back and forth with the, you know, we want to have both of those polls online. Actually, the new integration is going to have both those stories fully told. And we're not there yet. We still have a lot of the grievance story to tell, actually. I mean, we're telling it, God knows. But they're both, they both have to be, to be worthy of integral, we have to get them both. The left doesn't get the gratitude side that well, and the right doesn't get the grievance side that well. And that's why I wonder, are we done with Trump yet? But I hope so, because I was inspired by Joe Biden. I'm going to read you a couple paragraphs of what he, what he said. And he said it well, by God. He said, you know, so he's talking about the Battle of Gettysburg and, of course, Abraham Lincoln. The president comes and does the Gettysburg Address. Oh, my God. And he talks about how Abraham Lincoln, as he says, believed in the rescue, redemption, and rededication of the Union. All this in a time, not just of ferocious division, but of widespread death, structural inequality, and fear of the future. Let's just pause there. I mean, we think of our time, and then think of that time, the last time we did this. And he taught us that a house divided could not stand. That is a great and timeless truth. Today, once again, we are a house divided, but that, my friends, can no longer be. We're facing too many crises. We have too much work to do. We have too bright a future to have it shipwrecked on the shoals of anger and hate and division. Instead of treating each other's party as the opposition, we treat them as the enemy. This must end. We need to revive the spirit of bipartisanship in this country, a spirit of being able to work with one another. When I say that, and I've been saying it for two years now, I'm accused of being naive. I'm told, maybe that's the way things used to work, Joe, but they can't work that way anymore. Well, I'm here to tell you they can, and they must, if we're going to get anything done. So, you know, are we ready for this? I was inspired by that. I, you know, I had this idea that Biden was at best a placekeeper. We've had enough chaos of Trump. Maybe we can catch our breath and he can do, be a caretaker. But maybe he's more than that. Maybe he actually is the next thing. There's a number of theories that we can plug in here. You know, as an integralist, I love them all and I see the value of each of them. But there's the pendulum theory that we see in recent history that we moved from a Bush to a Clinton and from a Clinton back to a Bush and then from Bush to Obama and from Obama to Trump. And there's lots of pendulums swinging always. The one thing to keep in mind is that while the pendulum swings, the clock moves forward. So that's really important part of that dynamic. And maybe it's time for after Trump to swing back to something like, we're not a red America, we're not a blue America, we're one America. That's a 
you know, another stab at that integration. And I'm not sure that these integrations and the thesis synthesis happens in the way that they used to. I think part of the where we've got, gotten in human history is we're not going to do a civil war again. I mean, will there be some violence? Maybe. Well, there's been some. It's been, I think, two dozen people died in the protests this summer so far. And actually, the, most of it was criminal activity on the edges. Um, the, the, I don't discount it, but look at the political violence in this country, including the Civil War. So I don't know. I think maybe we're ready for that. Uh, the second one is just the referendum theory that we have indeed just had enough Trump. You know, we get it. We had chemotherapy. He was the shaman who blew our minds. Human beings love to have our minds blown. We needed to have our minds blown. There was a certain consensus around things that needed, it was overconnected. You know, it was logy and having indigestion. And that we needed something to blow that up. It's happened, and now we can resort back to basic sanity. And that may be so. And then there's that, you know, the great man theory <laughs> that yes, there is a movement to history that is discernible. But in any given circumstance, one person can come in and really make a big impact. And again, I never thought Joe Biden was going to be that person. But I've got to say, I'm inspired by him and his homely love for America. And what I see him as getting is both he clearly has a love for America in that uncomplicated, traditional way, you know, that gratitude side. But he also gets the grievance side. He does. He's all about what needs to change in, you know, policing and so forth. Economically, I'm open to being inspired by this guy and maybe thinking that he's more than just a uh, placeholder. So, again, God's will be done. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's good enough for today. You can uh, get with me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. I love when people send me stuff. I get a lot of good stuff. And I'd love to hear your opinions about what I'm talking about, about Trump, about politics, about the vice presidential debates tonight. I mean, it is quite a time to be alive. It always is. I mean, it's human, being human is a trip. All right. <laughs> okay, folks, I think we're good. So uh, thanks for listening once again to The Daily Evolver. And we'll see you back here next week live, Wednesdays at 1 p.m., simulcast on Facebook and the Integral Live portal. We'll see you then.